0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios.
1: It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway.
2: Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever.
3: Solidarity forever.
1: Organized labor, as we know it, has its roots in the 1930s.
4: Efforts of business interest to forcibly open the strike-paralyzed port of San Francisco fail. Open warfare rages through the streets of the city
2: as 3,000 union pickets battle 700 police.
5: We are asking for a general strike to keep organized labor on the Pacific Coast. We are not only asking for it, but we're going to get it.
1: At the time of the New Deal, President Franklin Roosevelt recognizing that laborers had been overworked and underpaid, often in poor and unsafe conditions, took action.
4: We must continue to protect children, to enforce minimum wages, to prevent excessive hours, to safeguard, define and enforce... Collective bargaining. We stand outcast and starving
6: amid the wonders we have made. But the union makes us strong. On
1: July 5, 1935, FDR signed the National Labor Relations Act into law. The law, also known as the Wagner Act, required employers to bargain with unions that were supported by the majority of their members. In the years after World War II, things were looking really good for labor unions, especially for the workers who saw their wages double. But rampant inflation in the 70s, a recession in the 1980s dealt a serious blow to unions, and their membership has been on the decline ever since. Even so, organized labor continues to wield a lot of political power. In 2016, labor unions spent $217 million on that campaign, with almost all of it going to Democrats. Their members are also valuable grassroots organizers and foot soldiers, knocking on doors, making phone calls— and helping educate members of their union about the candidate or candidates they are supporting. It's no surprise, then, that Democrats running for president are heavily courting organized labor.
7: Now I'm a union man. Afraid's not what I am. To say what
4: I think, that the company stinks. Yes, I'm a union man.
5: I make no apologies. I am a union Man, 100% pro-union. I'm in full support of those child care workers organizing.
1: I
3: will be the president that returns the power to the people. Get you the raise, preserve your health care, get paid family leave.
7: Unions built America's middle class, and unions will rebuild America's middle class. It's not just about the primary.
1: Many Democrats are also worried about President Trump's proven success at making inroads with many rank-and-file members. In the 2016 election, Trump improved on Mitt Romney's performance with union households by nine points. In the industrial Midwest, Trump's attacks on NAFTA and other trade deals and his pledge to bring manufacturing and coal mining jobs back to the U.S. resonated. In Ohio, exit polls showed that Trump won over union households by 13 points. Four years earlier, President Obama had carried this group of Ohio voters by more than 20 points. While the AFL-CIO concedes that Trump outperformed Romney with union households, they point to their own internal exit polling to argue that Clinton, Hillary Clinton, did better with individual union members. Even so, in a closed-door meeting last month in Detroit, AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka told Democratic presidential contenders that they've been taking the labor vote for granted. He was quoted as saying, "...you can't offer campaign rhetoric or count on workers' votes simply because you have a D next to your name." Trump's perceived success in winning over this traditionally Democratic group, especially white male workers in the Midwest, has also helped shape the contours of the 2020 nomination fight. Vice President Biden's frontrunner status is built in part on the theory that he's the most able to win back those white guys in hard hats in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan.
5: The fact is that. Wall Street didn't build this country.
6: Ordinary middle class Americans, given half a chance, built it. Get me I'm part of the union till the day I die.
1: So, what role will organized labor play in 2020? This week, we pulled together a panel of national labor leaders to find out.
8: I'm Randy Weingarten, president, American Federation of
0: Teachers.
1: Mary Kay Henry, president of SEIU.
0: Lee Saunders, President of AFSME.
1: Before looking forward, though, I asked them to look back to what happened in 2016 and whether Democrats really did take labor support for granted.
0: I think in 2016, you saw a level of frustration that had been growing over a number of years with uh, not only union members, but uh, working families across the country, where their lives and their communities were still suffering, uh, their families were suffering. Uh, jobs were being lost, wages were stagnant, and uh, there was that kind of level of, of frustration where people just decided why not take a chance with somebody that was not um, uh, a normal kind of politician uh, that promised them the world as for working people, the world as far as helping them, uh, and uh, a number of trade unionists, a number of union members, uh, working families, working people uh, decided to take that chance and. Uh, And that's what happened. And there was a I think there was a disconnect with the Democratic Party. Also, uh, with many workers across the country, you had major disagreements as far as trade, as far as how to get this country moving again and supporting and having a seat at the table for working families. And all of that combined into what happened in 2016. I really believe that this is a different time. Uh, we're in a different place right now, and uh, the 2020 elections uh, will be different. Uh, if you look at what happened in 2018 with uh, uh, the gubernatorial elections, state legislative elections, uh, winning back the, uh, the House of Representatives, I think the Democrats are, are talking more about the importance of uh, the trade union movement, what we stand for, the importance of uh, unrigging a rigged economy the importance of ha- of having a seat at the table where billionaires and major corporations don't have all the power and wealth in this country. So I think that you're seeing that turn around, and we just got to continue to educate and mobilize and organize our communities and our members uh, in preparation for ne- uh, 2019 elections and 2020 elections.
1: Mary Kay Henry, I want to address this to you, because before we got on air, we talked a little bit about this. Do you uh, see that Democrats are focused on making that economic contrast, making that case about these are about everyday families and what Democrats can do for those families that Donald Trump isn't?
7: Yeah, I think we could do a better job in creating the contrast. When we say we're for health care that everybody can afford. Uh, We also need to remind uh, the electorate that the current administration and the Republicans in Congress are doing everything in their power to take health care away from millions of families, and they're suing to eliminate the requirement that pre-existing conditions are covered. So there's major threats uh, happening to people's pocketbooks from a president that says he represents uh, the interests of working people, and we know that we have to help break down that that's absolutely not true.
1: Um, Randy Weingarten, obviously teachers have gotten a lot of attention in this last year or so and have made quite a splash. And I'm wondering what you think that tells us, both about the state of the movement and your uh, members, and also how that might translate itself into 2020. So first, Amy, thank you for having us all on my, you know,
8: uh, brothers and sister um, in the other states. We've all actually been through an existential threat of the, you know, corporatists and anti-union folk and uh, a lot of extremists actually wanting to kill unions and put us in a crouched position because they and this gets to the teacher question. They kind of get in some ways. More than the Democrats did, and more than sometimes uh, we do, that when you join together as a union, the union becomes the vehicle by which you can get and help get people's aspirations where they feel hopeful, where they feel trust. And like Lee said, the last, the 16 was about fear and frustration as opposed to hope and aspiration. I think what you're seeing with teachers is that. We kind of went to the brink over 28. You know, by the time you uh, 2016 rolled around, 28 states were still spending less than they spent in the um, before 2008 on schooling. You had teachers who were selling their blood plasma just to make ends meet, or working at the, you know, working um, as one of the people who Mary Kay is trying to represent in the fast food industry as their second or third job. And they were having classes of 40 and 50 instead of 20 and 30 with textbooks that said Clinton was still president rather than Trump. And, you know, and there's a point that you get to enough is enough. And people started joining together in some of the southern states that had the weakest labor laws. It riveted the labor movement at the same exact time as we were all doing one-to-one conversations with people because of the Janus case, and and people started saying, wait a second, I need that union. I need to stick together with collective bargaining and collective action because it is together that we will try to unrig the economy and have that voice at the table and the voice in politics. And it's been infectious around the country in only the best of ways in terms of that sense of hope that together we can change these policies. Elections matter. We can't do it alone at the bargaining table. We do actually need the kind of unions for all proposal that Mary Kay has made. We need the kind of working together, private and public, to actually um, enable collective bargaining for all. But the teachers
1: have really inspired in terms of taking that on. And yet, and Lee Saunders, I don't want to spend too much time on 2016, but I do want to kind of get to this question, though, that... Uh, we're still talking about today the success that President Trump had, at least in if you look th- through the exit polls, in union households, he really improved a great deal over, say, what Mitt Romney did. He actually won union households in states like Ohio. And the message, I think, beyond, as you said, it being about change and shaking things up was also... He was saying he was going to get rid of these terrible trade deals and he was going to bring manufacturing back. And he continues to hold this message. And and it seems as if he's still been able to hold on to a lot of those voters who say, well, you know, maybe we haven't fixed everything, but he sure looks like he's fighting for us. And I don't know that anybody else has been fighting for us like he has. I
0: I wouldn't um, agree with that synopsis. I think that the difference between now and 2015, 2016, when he was running, uh, was that he didn't have a track record. And he promised the world to everybody. Uh, he promised workers that they would not lose their jobs. He promised that he would keep manufacturing in this country. He promised that he would support and work with organizations supporting workers. And he made all of these commitments and he and he made all of these promises but now he's got a track record. There's reality that sets in. And I'm in Ohio right now, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, If you go up the road a little bit to Youngstown, Ohio, there are workers at a UAW plant in Lordstown and they're gonna lose their jobs. This is the same place where President Trump said, don't sell your homes, don't leave the town yet because uh, uh, you're gonna have your jobs. You're gonna have good paying jobs and that's not happening. That is just an example. It's happening all across the country. And what we have got to do collectively, I believe, uh, and uh, uh, Randy is doing it, Mary Kay is doing it, the entire labor movement is doing it, we've got to talk about what truth is versus fiction, okay? And call him out. Uh, call the president out when he's saying all of these things that simply are not true. But we also need more than just unions doing this, and, we, and, and, and it's happening. Uh, where we have community partners, where we have our allies, we have the women's movement, we have young people fighting back and making their voices heard like never before, communities of color. The trick is going to be to bring that pressure and put uh, pressure on those who can make change and hold them accountable and participate in the political process. And I, I consider this to be a movement moment right now where labor is coming together, our community partners are coming together, and we're we're very angry, we're frustrated, but we're making our voices heard, just as the teachers have made their voices heard. UFCW workers striking in the Northeast, Unite Here uh, Hotel Marriott workers striking people getting into the streets i think people are fed up they're fed up and they want to do something about it
1: one thing i was really curious to ask them about is how the medicare for all debate which is playing out in the democratic primary is landing among their members medicare for all has been a lightning rod with some candidates like bernie sanders fully embracing a single-payer system and others like joe biden arguing it would be devastating for union members who've been able to bargain for high quality health care coverage Take a listen to this exchange from the last debate. Can you guarantee those union members that the benefits under Medicare for All will be as good as the benefits that their representatives, their union reps, fought hard to negotiate?
5: Well, two things. They will be better because Medicare for All is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs for senior citizens. It will finally include dental care, hearing aids and eyeglasses. But you don't know. Second of all. You don't know. Second of all. I do know. I wrote the damn bill.
1: Randy Weingarten jumped in first to answer my question.
8: So I think that this has been and and you know in the last few days you've heard the vice president who is very proud of what the ACA did and we were very proud and fought very hard for it. But this is about where are our aspirations? And I think that what you're essentially seeing is a canard here in terms of the insurance industry trying to create fear. At the end of the day, we need universal access and more affordability. So the fact that we are actually moving the agenda to ideas like public option, um, Medicare for all, um, robust health plans, Medicare right now has insurance or has supplemental insurance. So those of us who have fought very hard to have some kind of universal access and to have good health plans, we're all seeing our health plans go up 10 and 20%. So we need to change the dynamic here. And so I think that what you're starting to see is different strategies for how to do that. But I think that ultimately that is um, long-term going to be a false dichotomy, and it's really about universal access.
7: And the Democrats need to follow Randy's very coherent argument with a crystal-clear analysis that Republicans have blocked health care expansion for $7 million people who could get it if they expanded Medicaid. Floridians have been demanding it ever since the Affordable Care Act was passed. And like Randy said, more and more people are unable to afford their employer coverage because of rising premium costs. And so there does need to be additional work. And hooray for the Democrats thinking about how to expand access and to increase coverage but the Democrats need to point the target at what's wrong with what the Republican administration and Congress is doing to sabotage the current health care system.
1: Mary Kay, I'm gonna start with you and then we'll go around the virtual table. Um, what are you hearing from your members that you think is not getting enough attention? in the national debate.
7: You know I just listened to two local leaders who've polled in um, Massachusetts and Oregon and they said what the answer to the question what keeps uh, people up mm. at night is uh, rising inequality both on race, gender, and uh, income. And that they're terrified that their children are going to be worse off. And that this um, presidential debate has to speak to what Lee said at the beginning, that people are suffering and all the yak, yak, yak hasn't really fundamentally addressed the fact that the 10 top growing jobs in this country are poverty wage jobs. And many of those jobs are in sectors like fast food, where the CEO makes $10,000 an hour, and a worker makes $8 to $10 an hour. And there's staggering profits that are not going into the pockets of workers. And there are fixes to this, um, that other countries in the world have fast food workers that lead Uh, middle-class lives that do one job and are able to care for their families. And that's what I hope this presidential debate will be about, which is what we have the right to expect as working people, that when you work hard you can lead a decent life and not have to scratch together two and three jobs, like Randy said about teachers, uh, in order to
0: provide for your family.
7: Lee, what about you? What is not getting discussed enough,
1: do your members think?
0: Mary Kay um, brought it home. It's about economic uh, inequality that exists in this country. But I want to tackle the question in a different kind of way because uh, our members, uh, and they are, uh, work for the state. They work for nonprofit counties, cities. They care about what's happening in their own neighborhoods, where they live, where their families live, what's going on in their communities, whether it's a decaying infrastructure. Uh, whether it's um improving the public schools uh, in their communities across the country, and they are very, very concerned about those kinds of issues. Those are bread and butter issues for them, and I think the candidates have talked about it, but they're going to have to delve deeper into how they're going to resolve those kinds of issues that impact our members and working families at the local level, along with dealing with the larger issues like health care, uh, like retirement security. Uh, but they're going to have to deal with uh, the issues that our members members are faced with every single day that they care about. And uh, there's got to be specific programs that our members are going to believe that uh, they can get something done. And I think that's going to be the trick to, to all of this. How do we energize and focus not only our members, but our communities and working families across the country on the candidates who are saying that they want to help them in a variety of different kinds of ways. And I think you've got to break it down and get to the local level and talk about what's happening in the communities across the country.
1: Randy, I'll leave it one last one for you. If you have anything to add. So let me
8: just say, I agree with my two colleagues. We may actually think globally, but we act locally. And our members care a whole lot about what is happening to their kids and what is happening to families, and what is happening generationally. We have become very fixated on student debt because you can see how between student debt and crushing healthcare costs, that people can't make a living wage, and they see the American dream disappearing. But they are as concerned about themselves as they are about their broader communities, and I love that about them. Teachers want what children need, as do all the other workers that we, all three of us, represent. And that is why I think we love representing the working people and the working families
0: of the United States.
1: Randy Weingarten, Lee Saunders, Mary Kay Henry, thanks so much for coming in and joining me. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
1: Coming up, we get a view from organized labor in three battleground states and later, how domestic workers are organizing to fight for better pay and workplace protections. We just heard from three national labor leaders about how they're feeling heading into 2020. But I wanted to get a feel for things at the state level, particularly in the battleground states where the 2020 race will be won or lost. We begin in Wisconsin. President Trump won Wisconsin in 2016 and winning the state back is a key part of the Democrats' strategy in 2020. One way for them to shore up that support, labor.
2: My name is Stephanie Bloomingdale. I'm the president of the Wisconsin AFL-CIO. In Wisconsin, we have seen an assault on union rights with our former governor. The union buster in chief, Scott Walker, attacked unions, attacked working people throughout his tenure, took public sector bargaining rights away, and also implemented the so-called right to work in Wisconsin, which what that is intended to do is to weaken unions. And we know if we don't have strong unions, we don't have a strong economy for working people. And so how that has affected uh, people in Wisconsin is that people understand how important union rights are in a way that is different than it was even 10 years ago. And so what we're seeing now, and this this is playing out in, at the national stage, we have a recent Gallup poll that shows that union popularity is now at a 50-year high. And this is really correlating with the, the economic uncertainty of people understanding that there is a vast uh, system of inequality between those that have the most and the, the rest of us that work for a living. So we are seeing that uh, popularity and understanding of the importance of unions is a major, major issue here in Wisconsin. People are feeling that the country is going in the in the wrong direction right now across the nation. But here in Wisconsin, uh, people are looking at what are what are the candidates saying about what is going to impact their lives directly? What is going to impact their kids' lives? How are we going to deal with the rising cost of health care? What are we going to do about the wages that are stagnant and not increasing? What are we going to do about? The rising reality of automation and how is that going to impact not only how people are going to be able to make it right now, but how are their kids and their grandkids, what kind of life are they going to have down the road?
1: From America's Dairyland, we head west to Nevada. Union workers here make up about 14% of the workforce, which is almost four points higher than the U.S. average and is about equal to the states in the industrial Midwest. And as one of the early primary states, Nevada has attracted a lot of candidate attention.
6: My name is Rusty McAllister. I am the Executive Secretary-Treasurer of the Nevada State FLCIO. Well, I'd say that the candidates for the presidential election on the Democratic side have been extremely active in the state of Nevada. Uh, They have been visiting all over the state. Uh, A lot of the candidates have been here multiple times. They've been reaching out to us in labor to set up you know, roundtables with labor leaders, if we could. They've been meeting with individual affiliates. And uh, so I'd say they've been very, very active. The feeling that I get from the labor members and leaders that, that we've had uh, come to our roundtables and the interaction, they're anxious for more information. They they want to talk to the candidates. They want to ask them questions specific to labor and see what their positions are specifically and uh, uh, how that relates to you know, what they do and how that relates to uh, how, they, how they live, uh, how they, they make ends meet here in the state of Nevada. As far as you know, what the life is like here in Nevada for labor members, I, uh, I will say this. Uh, Nevada is one of the last states to come out of the Great Recession. Uh, we are at a position now where there's been work created. There is a lot of construction work going on here in both southern and northern Nevada. So there are jobs uh, available. The question is, depending on what industry you're in, uh, the wages that are being paid to many of these workers uh, are not keeping up with uh, you know, the cost of living. The cost of housing, especially here in Nevada, has, has escalated. And it's making it very difficult for uh, people to make ends meet. And so I think they have questions uh, about um, um, what can you do to... You know, help me out. Uh, uh, make make things a little easier for you know me, uh, the the worker.
1: For Democrats, the path to winning the electoral college goes right through Pennsylvania. In fact, President Trump won the state by just over forty four thousand votes. That's less than one percent in twenty sixteen. Union leaders here are determined to turn that around.
5: This is Rick Bloomingdale, president of the Pennsylvania AFL CIO. Since we're such a late primary state, actually, we haven't seen a lot of presidential activity here yet, uh, other than President Trump has been back a couple of times. Uh, but the only candidates we've seen here have been uh, Cory Booker and Joe Biden, uh, mostly doing fundraising events in Philadelphia, where there's a lot of big money. What folks have seen has probably been the debates or you know whatever news channel they happen to listen to. But They're not real focused yet on the presidential race. The average voter out there and the average union member, you know, they're just going to work, worried about their kids starting the first day of school. Why are they having to buy armored backpacks and why are their kids doing, you know, safe, active shooters drills? Those kind of things are on their mind, not particularly the 2020 presidential election just yet, um, but it will be. The economy is going to be key in the election next year, as we saw in 2016. Folks are still concerned about the, you know, the loss of jobs, the loss of manufacturing, the loss of income. Um, Good-paying, good union jobs, you know, kind of migrated out over the last 30 years, and you know, it's been a frustration for our folks, and. In, 2016, you had one candidate talking about bringing jobs back, and you had another candidate talking about how bad the other candidate was. Folks responded to to that glimmer of hope he was offering.
1: There's one thing that Rick says members want to know from candidates.
5: You know, one of the big things that we're pushing and we've asked every candidate to comment on is the PRO Act, protecting the right to organize. And it's it's a piece of legislation that would be the next big NLRA. You know, we had the National Labor Relations Act passed in 1935. Business has been chipping away at NL- the NLRA for since it passed and weakened it and weakened it and weakened it. This would really bring it back to its intent, which was to promote collective bargaining and level the playing field for workers. That's a critical piece we're going to be asking every candidate from Congress uh, to a presidential candidate? Where do you stand on the PRO Act? And again, it's all about educating our members. Um, it's all about making sure that they have the information that they need to make that informed decision. And that's going to be door to door. That's going to be on the phones. It's going to be through the mail. We're going to go talk to them as, as much as we can, um, because we know if they get the information they need from trusted sources, which they trust the AFL-CIO and their unions you're going to see that they choose the candidates that are are supporting labor.
1: Rick Bloomingdale is president of the Pennsylvania AFL-CIO. We also heard from Rusty McAllister, executive secretary treasurer from the Nevada AFL-CIO, and Stephanie Bloomingdale, president of the Wisconsin AFL-CIO. And many of you have been sharing your stories. This is Claire
4: calling from Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm originally from Minnesota and my dad's been in the electrical union for years and growing up, having that insurance to cover our whole family for a cheap cost for us as a middle-income family was amazing.
5: This is Jared from Lowell, Massachusetts.
3: I am already part of an adjunct faculty union at my local university and I'm proud to be a member. The faculty union gives me a sense of job security and I know they're fighting for better wages and working conditions for me and the rest of the staff.
7: Andy Grace from Berkeley, California. My family ran a union painting company from our home. When I was a child, I answered the phones from the age of eight and was filling out union reports from age ten. My parents taught me that unions protect workers and families. Their desire as employers to do the right thing for their workers was positively and absolutely formative for me as a businesswoman. This is Shelley. I'm calling from Plymouth. I was raised in a Teamster household back in the '60s and
1: '70s, and I remember good health care, full dental and my father praising the benefits and protection that we enjoyed as a family. We always want to hear from you. Give us a call, 877 8 my Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers.
3: To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history.
2: I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved
1: institutions,
2: Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts.
1: To understand the role that labor will play in the 2020 election, I sat down with Dave Jamison, a labor reporter for HuffPost.
3: The state in general is not great in the long term. Union membership is really kind of hovering at a historic low right now. Only 6.5 percent of private sector workers are in a union. There was once a day when it was closer to one in every three. So unions are at a pretty diminished state, and they have been for a while. That said, um, I think there are some bright spots for labor going on that we've seen in the last few years. You take the teacher strikes that we saw last year sweeping the country. The fight for 15 has been a huge success. So there's been a bit of a rejuvenation, and I think unions are at, actually have a pretty good opportunity rolling into 2020. There's a big democratic field. I think they're in a strong position to really influence things.
1: The stereotype, I think, when folks hear the term labor union is a white dude with a hard hat or a guy working on an assembly line, maybe at an auto plant. But what is the union membership? Like, what does it look like now?
3: It's been changing. And I think that stereotype is there because it was true at a certain point. You know, decades ago, the, the idea of the, the construction worker in the hard hat with his union sticker on it is very true and still partly true. But the demographics are changing. And one clear trend we're seeing, uh, we're seeing more women in the labor movement. Obviously, that's partly a function of there being more women in the workforce now than there were decades ago, but women also happen to work in fields where unions are, are making a lot of progress, teachers, nurses, home care workers, a lot of women work those jobs. Those jobs are growing and the unions in them are growing as well. Uh, Another trend we see is it becoming less white. There are a lot of Latino workers who are in unions now that has been growing over the years. That's not surprising, given the demographic changes in the U.S. The share of black workers who are in unions has remained fairly steady for a long time, but we see the white share going down and the Latino share going up. And we've also seen in recent years is I think unions generally embracing immigrant workers.
1: Membership in unions has steadily been decreasing. There's talk that maybe there won't be union uh, presence in the same way we've seen, um, you know, in the next 20 years. It may look totally different. Um, How then do unions still have so much influence in the party and in a primary when their numbers have diminished so significantly?
3: Unions still run a a very effective ground game. You look at a union, and I'm, I know you following politics, you have heard of the Culinary Workers Union in Las Vegas. They are a political powerhouse. They've unionized the virtually the entire strip. They are majority women. They are nearly half immigrants. And they, they are strong enough that they can basically be a kingmaker in, in Nevada. They can put the state in your column, potentially. And so even though organized labor as a whole is diminished, unions, I, I think, still hit above their weight when it comes to the politics.
1: And the money. Yes. And they still are significant funders for Democrats, right? Are they still the number one funder for Democrats of any other sort of group or organization, sector?
3: I think, yeah, if you group all, all unions together, sure. And and it's been that way for decades. You know, unions going back years, Democrats have generally been, you know, their allies. They, they stand up for the similar principles. And Republicans have led a lot of the, the attacks on unions. You look at right-to-work laws and things like that.
1: Well, and there's also been a lot of discussion, especially with the rise of Donald Trump, that... Democrats have been losing support, especially from white male union members. For years, the talk was losing them over cultural issues like guns. Now it's that they really do like Trump personally, the way he appeals to them, both on cultural but also economic issues, right? I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to get your jobs back. I'm going to reopen the coal mines. How significant is that support and how worried are Labor unions themselves about the fact that Trump does have a personal appeal that to their rank and file members, even though the leadership may be endorsing Democrats.
3: Trump does have an appeal with with those, uh, you know, stereotypical Midwest union voters. I do think it's overstated a bit. You know, the AFL CIO says that in 2016, Trump did about. Three points better than Mitt Romney. The way we talk about it, you think he did twenty points better with with, you, with their their members? Um, it's really not not the case. Uh, but yeah, so Trump, three points. In, oh, in three, three states.
1: Yes. I mean, he won Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin by less than a point. Yes. So
3: three points is kind of a big deal. And and look, you could make the case that uh, you know Scott Walker going after unions in Wisconsin that he he gave the presidency to Trump. Uh, you know. Trump won Wisconsin and and unions were so diminished after after um, Act 10 in, in Wisconsin that they're they're not nearly as politically effective as they used to be. And so I, I think there's a sense that there needs to be a, a lot of rebuilding, especially in the Midwest by unions, not just with membership, but politically as well.
1: Another issue that seems to be uh, a big one in the Democratic primary is health care, Medicare for all. But it's also a big issue among the
3: labor community. I think it, it already has become a, a bit of a wedge issue. And on the whole, I think un, a lot of unions are sort of, you know, keeping it close to the vest where they are on, on Medicare for all. The, the issue here is if you you move to something like Medicare for All, and how does that impact the really good health plans that a lot of unions have negotiated for their members? And, you know, Joe Biden has kind of trotted this out. He's not a backer of Medicare for All, and he has specifically held up union members as people who who would be hurt by this. And so I think there's sort of, um, you know, understandable concern if I'm some housekeeper in the Culinary Workers Union, if we're going to move to Medicare for All, what's that going to mean for this awesome health care plan that I have and that I put so much sweat equity into that I literally went on strike over, right? But what a lot of... Union leaders are saying too who who are open to Medicare for all is, is they're saying hey look if we take healthcare off the table you know then we can plow all of our leverage all of our bargaining power into raising wages Dave Jamison
1: thank you so much for coming in Thanks for having me Dave Jamison is a labor reporter at the HuffPost There's a group of workers who've historically been left out of the movement Domestic workers, like nannies, home health care workers, house cleaners, make up a significant part of the workforce. In fact, home health care is the fastest growing occupation in the country. They're also among the lowest paid workers in the U.S. But for a variety of reasons, legal, cultural and social, these workers, mostly female and of color, have been denied access to the protections many other workers have been able to get. One group working to change that dynamic is the National Domestic Workers Alliance. I sat down with Ai-jen Poo, the organization's director. She talked to me about the group's work and the reality of a modern economy that relies more heavily than ever on domestic work. The National Domestic
4: Workers Alliance represents the nannies who take care of our children, the home care workers who support our loved ones with disabilities and take care of our aging parents and grandparents and the house cleaners who maintain order in our chaotic lives. We are an organization that brings dignity and respect to this work and really tries to transform these jobs into good jobs for the 21st century that you can really take pride in.
1: Uh, Domestic and farm workers were deliberately left out of 1930s labor laws and I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about that why domestic workers have not been organized before it's mostly women who do this work and really
4: historically this work has always been associated with women whether it's women caring for family members or as professionals It's oftentimes been associated with women of color as a profession. And in the 1930s, when Congress was passing the kind of core foundational labor laws that define our framework for today, they intentionally excluded farm workers and domestic workers who were largely black workers at the time. So it's part of a legacy of racial exclusion in this country that domestic workers have forever since the founding of our nation's labor law has been excluded from some of the most basic protections, including the right to form a union and collectively bargain. Mm. And so that exclusion has really defined the conditions of work for generations, um, in addition to the cultural devaluing of women's work itself.
1: I want to go back to a moment in, there was a profile of you in the New York Times of your early organizing. And I want you to sort of walk us through that time when you're in your 20s and you're wandering through playgrounds with basically printouts talking to nannies. And that's how this started. Yes. Um, what
4: was that like? In the early days, I mean, I, I was in New York City and and really, in some of these neighborhoods, on every single block, you see so many women of color pushing white babies in strollers. And you just know, like, there's a huge workforce that is really supporting this community um, in a really profound way. And I just started going to playgrounds. Um, I pretty much have in my mind every single playground and every single park in New York City mapped out from those days. And I would just sit down on a park bench uh, and talk to the nannies about their experiences and, you know, if they have heard of our organization and um, what their jobs were like and what they felt like they needed to be supported in their work and invite them to a monthly meeting. And It was literally like that, conversation by conversation. I would just go wherever nannies and caregivers and cleaners were gathered, whether during the workday or in transportation hubs on their way to work. Um, I discovered all the places in Brooklyn where women who work live in um, would leave at four and five in the morning to get on the train on Sunday or Monday, where they would go out into Long Island into the suburbs to work live in for the week Um, and I would ride the train and talk Mm -hmm. to women and really many of those we when we picture commuter rails we picture armies of people in suits getting off the train going to work in Wall Street um, or in Midtown and hours before that on Monday mornings an army of women of color got on the train to go out to support the families that those workers left behind.
1: Do you consider yourself and the the organization itself as part of the organized labor movement? We definitely consider ourselves a
4: part of a movement of working people and their families to achieve economic dignity uh, for the millions of workers in this country who work incredibly hard and still cannot make ends meet in an economy that is generating so much wealth and prosperity. um, The fact that the women that I work with are working incredibly long hours and putting everything they have, their hearts and souls, into this work. And yet they can't survive on the wages that they earn and we often lose our best caregivers to other low-wage jobs like retail and fast food when they were born to be caregivers i mean some of these women live and die by the work that they do and they should be able to earn a dignified living doing it
1: what are some examples so if you're if as a, a whether it's a home health care worker or a nanny who has been able to take your model and really improve their own standing?
4: Well, we have um, a framework we call the Fair Care Pledge, which is a simple kind of stop, drop, and roll framework um, for employers who want to do the right thing. And it really is about paying a fair wage, having a clear work agreement, and offering paid time off. And that pledge can be a guide in terms of sitting down and having regular conversations with your employee about what the shared expectations of the relationship are. Hopefully, we're at a point where more and more people are recognizing that.
1: I'm wondering if if you see the presidential campaign as something that, as an organization, you all are going to be engaged in, and if so, how? The primaries have been incredibly ideas-driven,
4: that we have actually had a conversation about real ideas and solutions to address the pain points that we feel in this country. And I think that that's so important. And I would love to see the candidates take head on this issue of how we are going to care for our families in the 21st century. And how are we going to support the workforce of workers that are going to be central to that? And I'm surprised it hasn't come up more and it's not too late for any of the candidates who are listening. Um, we really believe that this should be front and center. It's a jobs issue. It's a future of work issue. It's an economic issue, and it's an equity issue. Ai-jen
1: thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Amy. Ai-jen Poo is the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. One final thought for me today, when we talk about the battle for the Rust Belt, one image we get in TV ads or political coverage is of white guys wearing hard hats or coming out of a coal mine. The message, these are the voters that swing the election. It's also why many voters see Joe Biden, also a white guy from coal country in Scranton, Pennsylvania, as the ideal candidate to appeal to these voters. But here's the thing, many of those white guys in hard hats left the Democratic Party years ago even as their unions continued to support Democrats. There's a sense for many of them that the Democratic Party was too caught up in cultural and social issues they didn't agree with, like gun control. And all the attention on white guys misses the group of voters that I think will be critical to the election. The women and voters of color who make up an increasing share of the labor vote. Watch these voters in 2020. Where they go, so goes the election. And a quick shout out to the people that make this show. Amber Hall is our fearless lead producer. Patricia Jacob produced as well. Debbie Daughtry is our board operator this week. Jake Howitt directs the show. Polly Rungu is our digital editor. Deirdre Debke is our executive producer. And special thanks to Isabel Angel this week for helping out. She's in the control room today for her last day at New York Public Radio and The Takeaway. we wish her the best of everything going forward and we will miss her a ton. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.